In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I initially thought that this morning I would have one major problem, and that is trying to rescue truth from familiarity. And now I find I've got a double problem, and that is I have to follow Jonathan with this incredible children's story that he just read. So I'm going to have to try and hit both balls that are flying at the same time. In any case, let us look at this great story and see if we can find meaning that is quite often overlooked in the story. Our chapter headings were put in in the 5th century by Byzantine monks, and then the verse numbers were put in in 1551 by a printer outside London. Yeah, so recently, yes. And uh, so uh, we have to really kind of ignore those chapter headings. Sometimes they're in good places, and sometimes we really can't figure out why the Byzantine monks put them where they are. The the two accounts which you just heard so ably read this morning are two stories. Both of them happen in Jericho. They both happen at the same time. And I'm deeply convinced that the intent is that we should read them together, partly because the first one is Jesus dealing with the oppressed, and the second one is Jesus dealing with the oppressor, and they form a pair. So let us us look at these two stories and try to, indeed, to rescue truth from familiarity. As Jesus comes by, the blind man beside the road hears a crowd. And the crowd, he asks what's going on, and he is told that Jesus of Nazareth is coming by. And so the blind man cries out with a loud voice, Jesus, son of David, a very rare title, occurs only two or three times in the Gospels. But notice that the story of the cross and the resurrection begins by a blind beggar calling him son of David, and ends with the centurion, a Roman, calling him son of God. And the story of the passion of Jesus has those two bookends, and the reader of the gospel is is expected to notice those. And Paul, when he starts his great letter to the Romans, begins by affirming both of them, Jesus, son of David, son of God. The crowd. Yes, he's told that there is a crowd, and the crowd... Generally speaking, if you read the modern commentators, you will say, well, of course, a crowd of people followed Jesus from Galilee. That may be part of the story. But in traditional Middle Eastern village society, which still exists up until our day, whenever a famous person is coming to town, it is expected that the elders of the community should go out and greet the guests some distance out of town and then escort them back into the village in a kind of parade. I've had this happen to me, and it does make you feel kind of good. (laughs) And so the crowd has come out out from Jericho to meet the messianic pretender. He's on his way to the feast of Passover. Passover for the Jewish community, as we discovered when we lived for 10 years in Israel, is remembered in the following fashion. Whoopee! We got out of Egypt! Yay! It sounds like a celebration of having won the Super Bowl. Of course, in Pittsburgh, we are accustomed to these kinds of celebrations. 
And, uh, the, uh, and what is going on is that they are remembering their political liberation out of Egypt, and that's fine. So here is the messianic pretender, who by this time is a national figure, and he's on his way to Jerusalem at Passover, and is he going to make his move? Are we going to start the revolution? Does he have a deal with the Sekarim, the, the terrorists of the day, or does he have a, a deal with the zealots who are political activists? And are we going to at last have the great revolution and get the Romans out? And they have lots of questions they want to ask him because religion and politics are always a single package in the Middle East. And so the crowd, uh, uh, of course, coming out to meet him means that appropriate preparations are made. And that means someone has got a great big banquet prepared and there's going to be a huge feast and at the end of the seven-course meal around midnight sometimes, then Jesus will lean across the table and say, what can your humble servant do for you? And yes, they have lots of questions they like to ask him. This is the background of the story when we know that as we approach Jericho, there's a crowd. The blind man beside the road understands all of this, and he cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd says, shut up and sit down. He doesn't have time for you, people like you. He cries out all the more, and Jesus does not go to the edge of the road to talk to him. He summons him. That means he turns the people who are demeaning this poor man into courtiers to escort the beggar into the presence of the great king. It's a nice touch. <laughs> and the beggar, of course, has an agenda, but Jesus also has an agenda. And the beggar starts off, uh, Jesus starts off by saying, what can I do for you? Well, it's rather obvious. I mean, the man's blind. Give me a break, of course. But you see, Jesus wants to know, are you ready to take on the fresh responsibilities that will come with the grace of God? Begging in Middle Eastern traditional society is a recognized profession. And the beggars offer services to the community. Everybody who is pious is supposed to give to the poor. And if the poor aren't out there to receive your pious offerings, then you cannot fulfill your religious duty before God. And so the beggar, the beggar does not say, hey, bud, you got a buck for a cup of coffee. He says, give to God. I've got nothing to do with this. I'm giving you a chance to fulfill your religious duty before God. And if you give him something, he will stand up and in loud, very polished, classical Arabic phrases... He will praise you and, and praise your ancestors and ask God's blessing on your coming out and your, your going in and your family and all your relatives and your investments and your business interests. And uh, you may not be the... He always sits in a public place, so a lot of people will hear all this good stuff. And he will praise you as the most noble gentleman he's ever met in his, and generous than he's ever met in his entire life. And you may not be the kind of person about whom such very nice things are being said in a loud voice in a public place. And it ought to be worth four bits. <laughs> you know, it doesn't make you feel kind of good. I in no way mean to demean the begging class of the Middle East, but I do notice that they are, on the general side, they are a little bit stout. <laughs> they manage. But to take up this profession, 
You have to have something visibly wrong with you. Sore back like I have won't do. One leg or one arm, you might make it, but a little bit iffy. Blind, perfect, guaranteed lifetime income. Now, what if Jesus heals this man? What's he going to do tomorrow? No one is going to give him a plug nickel. He has no job experience. He has no training. He has no education. He has no skills. He's never been employed in his entire life. And if he tries to put out his hand and say, give to, the, give to God, they're going to say, hey, kid, go get a job. But he can't. Isn't it in his interest to remain blind? I have a student who served for a number of years uh, in Bangladesh, and he told me recently five different occasions he found a beggar beside the road in Bangladesh who had fallen into the fire as a young boy and had terribly scarred legs and couldn't stand. And my friend, student, knew that a little bit of surgery would help cut those lesions and he would be able to walk again and offered to the beggar, this can be cured. I'll take you to the hospital. I'll pay all the bills and you will be able to stand like a man again and be uh, much more whole than you are now. And all five of them refused. This was their, this was their income. It was their profession. The point is being asked. Yes, grace is free. But grace grace has responsibilities that come with the acceptance of that grace. And Jesus is giving him an exam. Are you ready for the fresh responsibilities that come with the free grace of God? Jesus asks the same question to the man who was beside the pool of Siloam for 38 years. Do you want to be healed? The beggar replies, he passes the exam, and he says, yes, I want to see. Some of our medieval versions add a little flair to it, and I want to see that I might be able to see you. A little Christological flourish that's not in the text, but I like it anyway. (laughs) I think he does want to see Jesus. The crowd has just been given a sharp slap over the wrist. This outcast of your society, whom you marginalized and told to shut up and sit down because Jesus didn't have time for him, has been selected for special grace. The crowd manages to absorb that criticism and were told that they went into the town and went to the banquet that was prepared and they spent the night in a great celebration and discussed all kinds of religion and politics. No. Jesus marches right through town and he is on his way up to Jerusalem, 17 miles uphill, but it's still early enough in the day he can make it before sundown. He makes the decision, sorry about that, I don't have time to spend any time talking to you. I have an agenda up at the top of the hill. When I was, my wife and I were at the Ecumenical Institute in Jerusalem, on one occasion we had Jimmy Carter and Rosalind as guests of the Institute, and because he wasn't coming for a meal, there wasn't time for that, but we were to serve tea. 
So the dining room was, was about the size of this room here, and all the tables and chairs were taken out except a great big U-shaped, and everybody who knew how spent the entire week baking goodies, and you can't imagine the mound of goodies that were spread out on those tables. And the meetings ran late, and the carters came through the dining room, and Rosalind was kind enough to pick up one cup of tea and take one sip, and off they went to the next meeting, and there was no joy in Mudville that day. <laughs> what are we going to do with this mound of cookies that's big enough to feed an army? Sorry about that. The party isn't going to come off. That's the same discouragement and Sorrow, yes, that happens in Jericho when Jesus decides he isn't going to spend the night with them. Aha. But there is someone in that crowd who is the town collaborator. And collaborators, so I discovered when we lived amongst the Palestinians on the West Bank, and the collaborators were known and they were pointed out to me and the one thing the collaborators never did and that is they never mixed in crowds especially if they were short because if you mix the collaborator must always check his back and if you mix in that crowd what is going to happen to you Yes, the quick flash of the knife, the stifled cry, and nobody finds the body until the parade is all over and you can't arrest 5,000 people. And so it's not a matter of elbows. They don't like him and won't let him up front if he were respected. Mr. Zack, you can't see, wouldn't you like to stand up front? But he is despised and he is frightened at crowds and dares not mix into the middle of them. He very badly wants to see Jesus, and so he does two very strange and unusual things. The first is he runs. People with power and influence wearing long robes never run anywhere. But he's run, running down a back alley, and everybody's walking, watching the parade, and so they won't see him. And he runs out of town. We know that because the rabbis said that the sycamore fig tree, which is mentioned in the story, only grows in very hot places like Jericho, and it has the fruit has almost no sugar in it and is practically worthless, but it has very large limbs that go out, and they are very useful for making the beams of the roofs of people's houses. And the tree has to be outside of town, said the rabbis, because if you have a tree like this in your backyard and then the branches go out over the road, which they, the street, which they probably will, and then if you ceremonially defile yourself by touching something dead or eating some dates that haven't been, haven't been uh, uh, tithed or something like that, then the defilement goes into the tree and it spreads out through the tree and anybody walking under the tree out in the road will become also ceremonially defiled. So if you're going to grow a sycamore fig, it has to be some distance from the town. Zacchaeus thinks, I'll run out to that big sycamore tree the other side of town, and the sycamore tree is the only indigenous tree in the Holy Land that has large leaves. The rest of them are palm trees or olive trees, 
and things like that with leaves about the size of your little finger and you can see right through them. But the sycamore tree, fig tree, is big and it has big leaves and you can hide. Ah, yes. Limbs close to the ground so you can climb into it relatively easily and once in the tree you can hide. Why? You don't want anybody to see you. Powerful people in any community, liked or not liked, do not climb trees at public parades. When was the last time the president of the First National Bank or the rector of the university or the mayor of your fair town climbed a tree at a public parade? No, they don't do it. Little boys and little girls climb trees. But people of power and rank stand in the viewing platform. Zacchaeus doesn't want anybody to see him. He hopes the crowd is going to be dispersed before they get to the tree, but the crowd isn't, and somebody spots him. We know that because Jesus can call his name, and if Jesus can call his name, and Jesus, so far as we know, has never been to the town before, where does Jesus pick up the name? Well, you can go the theological route and say, well, Jesus, knowing all things, would say, but whenever there is the assumption that Jesus is using information he would not normally know, then the text always says, he knowing all things said. We don't have that here. And if Jesus can spot him, so can the crowd. And if the crowd spots him, what do you think they have to say about good old Zach now that the polecat is treed? And all the things that you would like to have said in his office all uh, over these years, because mind you, he's not just collecting taxes for the community that it's going to help build roads and schools, but he is collecting taxes, a big chunk of which is going to end up in the hands of Rome. This is now an occupying force, and the taxes are collected primarily in the interest of that occupying force. Thereby, the one who collects them is ceremonially defiled, and his house is defiled, and he as a person is defiled, and he is despised. The Babylonian Talmud says there are certain kinds of people you can lie to, and one are thieves, and the second is murderers, and the third are tax collectors. And I thought about putting that as a little footnote on my income tax last year. (laughs) Uh, Then I thought, well, perhaps I better not. In any case, this man of everybody in town is despised. This class of people have betrayed their nation to the occupying Roman force. And now he's treed. And all the four-letter words that they'd like to shout at him in his office and couldn't, because the system was called tax farming. The Romans would sell the right to collect taxes at auction every year and then say to the person who won the auction, we want so much money from this province, and at the end of the year they didn't ask any sticky questions about how much money you took in, just so you have the big chunk for the Romans. It was a system that was guaranteed to have all kinds of corruption. They hate him. He's gotten rich over the process. And so pretty soon, one cat call triggers another, and there is a whiff of violence in the air. And Jesus is expected to respond, and he is expected to say, Zacchaeus, the anger of this community is fully justified. You have broken the law of Moses. You have become ceremonially defiled. You are draining the economic lifeblood out of your own people and giving it to their military occupiers. 
You are a traitor to your God and to your nation and to your religion and to the law of Moses. And you're lucky that they have not, in some sense, somehow done away with you. And what is required of you is to quit your job, pay them back all the money you took from them illegally, and go up to Jerusalem and go through the week-long process of ceremonial purification. And when you come back, find a job that is within the confines of the law of Moses. And if you do that and see that your house is, is becomes ceremonially pure, if you do that, then the next time I come to town, I will drop in for a congratulatory cup of tea. Re- audience response? That isn't what happens. Jesus shares their feelings. He knows what the collaborators have done to his people. But Jesus, probably having learned it from his mother, knows how to reprocess his anger into grace. And sometimes that grace is a very costly grace. Jesus stops looks up, everybody waits for the good speech, and Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I didn't think I had time to talk to anybody in your town. I am in a hurry. I've just changed my mind. I accept your gracious invitation to be your guest for the night. I don't have time to talk to them. I've got time to talk to you. So, The town collaborator is more important to this man than those of us who keep the law. Now, what is the attitude of the community? The hostility against Zacchaeus has now been shifted. They are now forgotten all about him, and they are now mad at Jesus. By his stripes, we are healed. Zacchaeus up the tree has to decide, is he going to accept to be found? Or is he going to say, tick, 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 my Roman uh, authorities for whom I work will not be pleased if I talk to this fellow who's making noises about being the Messiah. I think I better stay up the tree. No, he accepts to be found. And then what happens is he goes, Jesus goes with Zacchaeus into the home of Zacchaeus and he is thereby ceremonially defiled by sitting on Zacchaeus' chairs and by reclining on the couches for the triclinium meal that night and the story, and now the crowd is really mad. And we fast forward to the banquet that night. Zacchaeus' other tax collector friends come in and nobody tells Zacchaeus what he has to do. But in the middle of the banquet, Zacchaeus feels the pressure to respond. And when he responds, he responds out of the deepest level of who he is, not out of the deepest level who somebody else is. And he pledges himself to clean up his financial act with the community. And Jesus says, today, salvation has come passive. Who brought it? Jesus did. How? At great cost. To this house. For he also is a son of Abraham. The community was denying that he was. But he has now started off on a journey not knowing where he is going. 
He doesn't know what the tomorrow will bring because it's a fresh journey of faith triggered by the costly love that Jesus has just offered to him. And thereby he becomes a son of Abraham. He also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek, that's Bethlehem, and that's incarnation, and to save, and that's Jerusalem, and atonement, those who are lost. And the Good Shepherd has found one more sheep. May this powerful story, a mini summary of the heart of the gospel, ring afresh in our hearts and encourage us on our journey today. Amen.